Ananias comes, lays his hand on him, scales fall from his eyes. Immediately after that, Paul starts to uh, preach to the Jews in, in Damascus. And he starts to preach that Jesus is the Messiah. And the very next verse after that, we see that the Jews immediately tried to kill him. He'd just gotten saved. He immediately puts his faith into action, starts preaching, and immediately the Jews start to kill him. And only a couple of verses later, Paul was able to manage his escape with some assistance, letting him out of the city by night. He had to run away in the night. Acts chapter 9. Go ahead and read it yourself. So Paul, the point I'm trying, what, what's the point you're trying to make? Paul knows firsthand what it means to deal with opposition to his ministry. Paul knows what he's talking about. Now, I don't know if Timothy was dealing with life-threatening circumstances right now. I told you a little bit of historical fact uh, we get from church history. We know that Timothy was stoned to death and his body was dragged through the city of Ephesus uh, when he, he was stoned to death at the age of 80. That's how he met his demise. Uh, and then they tied him behind horses and dragged him around the city. Uh, so eventually he's going to face life-threatening circumstances which are going to take his life. But I do know that we've already seen Paul remind him of a, a couple of times already in this book that he can expect to face suffering in his Christian walk. And by the way, that's the normal state for Christians. The state that you and I find ourselves in without much suffering is not normal for Christians. It's never supposed to be easy to make a stand for Christ and the gospel when popular culture is against you. We're beginning to see some of that today. Well, today we're going to see Paul offer some encouragement that's going to supposed to help Timothy deal with the opposition in a constructive manner. He wants to see Timothy get into a position where he can not simply survive, but he can actually flourish in the face of harsh conflict. Did you realize that it's possible to do that? You can have harsh opposition and you can flourish. By the way, that's what most Christians around this world do. So back up and look at uh, verse 19. It says, Nevertheless, remember we were looking last week at a, uh, all kinds of opposition. Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal, the Lord knoweth them that are his. And let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Now the reality is, and in first century Ephesus, there were a lot of false teachers and false teachings. And what Timothy needs to remember, and needs to remind the Christians who are in Ephesus, is that God has the situation completely under control. It's a good reminder for you and I today. This whole world seems to be spinning out of control, doesn't it? But God's got it all under control. What was true then is still true today. God knows those who are His. And He's given them standing orders to depart from iniquity. Those are our standing orders. Now, this assurance, that assurance that God knows those that are His, should give Timothy the confidence to keep ministering, knowing that everything is under God's sovereign control. Do you believe God's sovereign? Everything's under God's sovereign control. And even though others might be denying the fact of the resurrection, we looked at that last time, 
and they are facing damnation for it, Paul says so, God has not fallen off his throne. The foundation of God standeth sure, it says. Now what a truth that is to remember, isn't it? You know, God has the situation fully under control. God has a kingdom over which he is the all-powerful sovereign ruler. Paul, Timothy, me, you, we're all able to enter into that kingdom by faith in the gospel. I can only think of uh, Paul's words as he summed up his own first missionary journey. He's just gotten to the, remember Acts chapter 9, he's just gotten saved, he starts preaching, almost gets killed. Acts chapter 14, verse 22, he's just finished his first missionary journey, traveled around a little bit. He says, we must through much tribulation enter into the kingdom of God. We must through much tribulation enter into the kingdom of God. Acts 14, 22, that's only a part of it. See, Timothy would have been one of those people who would have heard Paul's preaching in those days, too, by the way. way this, we're talking 30 years prior. Timothy would have heard that. And we know that. How do, I, how do you know that Timothy was right there? Acts chapter 16, verse 1. Go ahead and read that yourself later on. But the idea of the firmness of God's kingdom has been a recurring one in 2 Timothy. I don't know if you've noticed that. Uh, if you skip ahead to look to uh, chapter 4 and verse 1, he says, I charge thee, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at the appearing of his kingdom. Paul not only... Re uh, Paul refers to Jesus as king here. Did you see that? The Lord Jesus Christ, who's going to judge the quick and the dead at the appearance, at his appearing and his kingdom. If you have a kingdom, that makes you a king, right? Uh, Paul only refers to Jesus as king one other time. Did you know that? And it's also in his writing to Timothy. We, we already saw it in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Skip back to 1 Timothy chapter 6, uh, verses 14 and 15. A little doxology here. He says, That thou keep this commandment without spot, unrebukable, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which in his times he shall show, who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords. That's the only other time Paul refers to Jesus as a king. But even though he doesn't mention it very often, specifically in those words, it's very clear in Paul's mind that Jesus reigns sovereign over all his people, and over the entire world. And his kingdom, Jesus' kingdom, is at the heart of Paul's eternal hope as he's facing execution. Remember, Paul is just about to face the executioner. And yet he's still trying to encourage Timothy. I don't know how many people would do that. I mean, you're, most people, when they're facing death, they're probably going to be pretty mopey about it, aren't they? But is Paul moping about his own situation? No. Timothy, you've got to keep carrying this on. You've got to keep spreading this gospel that I've been spreading. Let me encourage you a little bit. I've only got a little bit of time left, Timothy. Let me encourage you. Right up to the end, you see. 
Look at his last words. Let's, let's skip ahead to la his last words to Timothy, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 18. And the Lord shall deliver me from every evil work and will preserve me unto his heavenly kingdom, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. That's Paul's last, really his last words to uh, Timothy. Paul had complete confidence in God's foundation, didn't he? Yep, I'm about to face the executioner, but God is going to bring me into his kingdom. I'm completely confident of that, Timothy. Now, we've gone through uh, verse 19 here. You mind if I break off and do a little bit of a complex word study for you, just, just for a little bit? Uh, it might take a little bit of time, but I think it'll be worth it. If we're looking at verse 19, notice what the first word is. Nevertheless, right? Nevertheless, that seems like a common word for you and me, but that's actually a, a very rare word in the Greek. And this is the only time Paul ever uses it. This is the only time Paul ever uses this specific word for nevertheless. John, James, and Jude all use it, but this is the only time Paul ever uses it. Because this is not a common word for Paul to use, I can deduce one thing. Paul is choosing his words very, very carefully in this passage. He wants this to come across with a very pointed message. That's why he's selecting very specific words that Timothy may have never ever heard Paul use before. Pay, pay close attention to these things. Another interesting thing, that phrase, it says, nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure. Standeth sure, that's one word in the Greek. Uh, it could be more accurately translated solid. The foundation is solid. In fact, some Bibles translate it that way. This foundation that we're talking about is a solid foundation. Again, this is the only time Paul ever uses this word solid, although other writers do. Third thing that I'd like to point out, the word foundation. That word foundation is one that Paul does use other places, and so do other New Testament writers. Relatively common word. In Paul's mind, Christ is the cornerstone of God's building. We see that in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, when he's describing the building us up together with Christ as the cornerstone. If you turn to... Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 13. Let's, let's look at that. Uh, uh, 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 11, rather. Sorry. That's a classic passage that I'd like to point out. 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 11. For n other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Do you know why the foundation is solid? Because Jesus, the cornerstone, is solid. I got one last observation here before I'm done my little word study. Notice that this is in the present tense. You're reading the English here. Uh, let's read it again. Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth. Sure, it stands right now. Sure, having this seal. It's all written in the present tense, right? Well, in the Greek, it's in the perfect tense. We don't have a perfect tense in the English, do we? 
Uh, so let me explain to you what perfect tense means. Most other languages in the world have a perfect tense, but English doesn't. English, uh, in the perfect tense means that it is true right now and it will ever be sure, forever, never changing. That's what a perfect tense means. Uh, if you want to think of it in the title of a book, The Once and Future King. He is the king now. He will be the king forever. Uh, so this foundation is sure now, today, and it will be sure, solid, forever. It can't shake ever. We aren't waiting for a day when this foundation will be laid. It's standing firm now, and it will remain so for all of eternity. Can I get a hallelujah? All right, there. Now let's not forget that uh, God's foundation is marked with a couple of seals as well. Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal. The Lord knoweth them that are his, and let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Two seals, right? Now when we read this, we need to remember that in those days, a seal is used to show ownership or to identify an object which is sealed. So if you say you've got a scroll all rolled up in the seal, it looks like every other scroll, right? We, we need to know what's inside this scroll. So the seal says what's inside this scroll. This is the title deed to blah, 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 blah. Right? Those are two purposes. It shows ownership. This, this sealed object belongs to so-and-so, or this sealed object contains this. Two purposes for seals. We don't use seals too much these days, so... I mean, we sometimes have a notary seal or something like that, but that really not, doesn't mean the same thing. So I thought I ought to explain it. Uh, both of the seals mentioned here are references to Old Testament scriptures. And they could be seen as a continuation of the warning that we looked at last time to Hymenaeus and Philetus. The Lord knoweth them that are his. By the way, that is a direct quote from Numbers chapter 16, verse 5, as, it, as it's written in the Greek Septuagint. If you look back in your Bible, right, if you take your King James and you look back to Numbers 16, verse 5, uh, it'll look totally different. And that's because the King James translators did not use the Septuagint, which seems odd to me because over 90% of the time, Jesus or anyone else in the New Testament ever quoted the Old Testament, they quoted the Septuagint. Something for you to think about. Uh, I'd be happy to discuss that later on if you'd like to, but I'm just throwing it out there for now. What Paul is telling Timothy here, when he quotes this, he is quoting directly Numbers 16, verse 5, that by upholding this gospel message of Jesus, of the resurrection of Jesus, God will recognize and stand behind Timothy and his preaching. God knows that you're his, and God is going to stand behind you, Timothy, because you're sealed. The second seal that's mentioned is, and let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Now that is not a direct quote from any Old Testament passage. But it's one to which many allude. Isaiah 26, verse 13, if you want to look at it. Leviticus 24 and verse 16. Psalm 6 and verse 9, for example. And there are other references that are very similar. 
So now that I've spent so much time on verse 19, do you see what a firm foundation we have? So let's move on to the next couple of verses. Let's look at them together. Verses 20 and 21. But in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and of silver, but also of wood and of earth, some to honor and some to dishonor. If a man therefore purge himself from these, he shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified and meet for the master's use, and prepared unto every good work. So now Paul's making a change, you see, from citing scriptures to using a physical illustration from everyday life, including household articles. Everybody's got a house. Everybody's got vessels in their house. Whatever they might, might be a coffee cup, might be a bowl, might be this, might be that. Every house has them. Uh, now, notice that he does say a great house. This implies a home of someone who might be very wealthy. Uh, such a household would have vessel, uh, vessels of gold and silver in it. If the guy was pretty wealthy, he would have gold and silver vessels. As well as vessels of clay and vessels of wood. Now, the wood and the clay bowls would be the most perfectly ordinary vessels for everyday use. Just something you'd just everyday use. My ceramic coffee cup, for instance. Uh, and that kind of language reminds me a great deal of Romans chapter 9 and verse 21. Let's take a look at that quickly. Romans 9, 21. I just want to look at it real quickly. When Paul says, Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? It's ultimately God's choice which is going to be the honorable vessel, what's going to, but it's all made out of the same clay. Another thought that I couldn't help but have is that we're using the language of the household of God here. Now, this isn't the first time we've seen it. Back in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15, we saw who's, uh, he refers to Christians as whose household you are, talking about God's household. Some members of the household of God might seem more distinguished than others sometimes, right? Some seem more distinguished, but they're all important. This great house, it has some vessels of earth, some vessels of wood, some vessels of gold, some vessels of silver. They're all, they all have a purpose. The gold and silver ones, yeah, those are the ones that catch everybody's eye. The grandma's uh, heirloom china or whatever sitting there, it catches your eye when you look in. But the truth is that doesn't get used all that often, does it? It's just there to look at. The stuff that gets used every day is my coffee cup that I grab off the shelf over the kitchen. It's, there's nothing special about it. If it drops and breaks, I'm not out anything. I'll get another one just like it. Those are the things that get used all the time, aren't they? But anyway, that's a little beside the point. Verse 21 brings us to another interesting concept. It says, If a man therefore purge himself from these, he shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified. If a man therefore purge himself. Now that ought to raise a couple of questions in our minds, or it did in mine anyway. I don't know if it did in yours. Wait a minute, I thought to myself. I said, I don't clean myself, do I? I don't cleanse myself. Christ cleanses me. And by the way, 
what in the world am I supposed to cleanse myself from? If you cleanse yourself from these, it says, well, what's he talking about? Well, let's keep with the illustration here. Every house has honorable and dishonorable vessels, right? The dishonorable vessels may not have a glorious purpose, but they have a purpose, don't they? But they can only accomplish that purpose if they are emptied out and cleaned once in a while, right? I think about underneath my kitchen sink. I have a couple of dishonorable vessels. One is for the chickens and one is for the compost pile for anything that even chickens won't eat goes to the compost pile. Those are dishonorable vessels. They're only useful if I clean them out once in a while. Right? You know what I'm saying. I don't need to give you any more detail than that. We each need to be cleaned out, don't we? Even Grandma's fine china sitting in the cupboard that catches our eye and looks nice, if you want to use that, and you might sometime. Sometime you might have a fancy dinner, you might have people over, but you know what? It's all dusty, isn't it? Because nobody's ever used it in 20 years. So you've got to take it down and you've got to clean it. Even the gold and the silver bowls get dirty with use, don't they? You took down Grandma's nice fancy gravy bowl. You put gravy in it for Thanksgiving. You used it. Well, I'll put it back on the shelf now. We're done, right? No, it still needs to be clean, doesn't it? We each need to take a good long look at our lives and be constantly aware of areas where we need to tidy ourselves up in our own lives, right? And God's Holy Spirit will help, but we need to take an active approach in our own lives, don't you see? We can't just sit in the pew and say, well, I'm just waiting for the Holy Spirit to clean me up. If every man purge himself, we've got to do, take some action. Now, before we wrap up, I'd like to do one more little word study. I, I did a little bit longer one just a minute ago. Uh, the word that's translated honor in verse 20. Uh, in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and of silver, but also wood and earth, and some to honor and some to dishonor. That word honor, verse 20, do you know what that literally means? Honor. That literally means honor. Some folks in God's house will serve in a very esteemed and distinguished purpose, right? Some folks have a noble calling in God's house. We can all think of examples. Paul, for instance, he's the one that he's writing this right down. You and I are reading it 2,000 years. If ever there was an honorable vessel, Paul was one. How about Spurgeon? How about Moody? How about Billy Graham? We all know we can think of some honorable vessels in God's house. But we aren't all distinguished like that, are we? 2,000 years from now, if, if the world continues, which I don't believe it will, people aren't going to be reading the works of Dan Tuttle. I guarantee you that. But we've all got different, different levels of honor. We've all got roles to fill. Now, the next, next thing uh, that I want to look at is this word sanctified. This word sanctified. Uh, that's a word that Paul uses a lot. And he uses it to describe how God sets believers apart for his specific purposes. He sets each and every one of us apart. For, you can look at examples. I'll, I'll list off a couple. You can look at them later. Romans 15, 16. Great picture. Uh, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 2, 
1 Corinthians 6, verse 11. Uh, Ephesians 5, 25. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23. Those are a few. Those are real prime examples I handpicked for you to look at later if you want to see what sanctification in our lives looks like. But here's the point. Just like God himself is holy and set apart from all the rest of everything else in this universe, to be associated with Christ is to be set aside for God's own purpose. If I'm a Christian, then I am set aside for God's own purpose. Each person may be set apart for a different purpose. Your purpose may be different than my purpose, but we're both set apart for a purpose, right? Each Christian is supposed to be set aside for a specific purpose, you see. And we need to acknowledge that, and we need to act in accordance with it. If you don't know what purpose you were set aside for, you, it's time to do some scrutiny and try and figure it out so you can start doing that purpose. Otherwise, you're going to have a meaningless life. Now, a third point that we shouldn't overlook is that Timothy, and really all believers, you and me included, are supposed to be meat for the master's use, it says. Meat for the master's use. Now, this could be simplified and put into a little bit more modern language by saying, useful for a sovereign lord. Since that's what master really means, master means the sovereign over his realm, and meat isn't really a word that we use too much in English anymore. Uh, this word master, by the way, I know I'm not too far off, it's, trans it's the same word and it's translated as Lord in uh, Luke chapter 2, verse 29, when Mary's, let it be unto me, Lord, Mary talking to uh, the angel. Uh, Acts chapter 4, verse 25, uh, 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 1, Revelation chapter 6 and verse 10. Paul uses the word which is translated as meat as useful many times. Uh, it's, I don't know why the King James translators translated it meat this time and they translate it as useful so many other places. Like for instance, uh, in our context, 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 11. Only Luke is with me. Take Mark and bring him with me, for he is profitable to me. That's the same word. Profitable is meat. He's useful. Profitable. Uh, Philemon verse 11 says the same thing. But one last observation, and we'll be done here. Timothy, and you and me, and all believers throughout all time, are to be prepared unto every good work. Prepared unto every good work, it says. Now, some Bibles will say any. You could argue what's the difference between any and every. Uh, every is a little bit more specific. I'm, I'm going to go in the King James camp on this one. Uh, I don't see there any reason to translate that as anything other than every. God, Paul is calling Christians to be ready for each and every single act of loyalty that God might require. We're his vessels, right? Just like my coffee cup, if I want to fill it with coffee, that's not the vessel's choice to, to make. I'm taking the coffee, am I going to fill it with coffee, or am I going to fill it with tea, or am I going to just fill it with water? That's, I am the master. Everything, whatever I want to put in that, 
It's not the vessel's choice, is it? Paul is calling us to be ready for each and every act of loyalty for our master, no matter how glorious, no matter how lowly that task might be. And that reminds me, let's turn one more time, and you're going to get a preview of what we're going to talk about during Sunday service. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10, it says, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. We need to always be prepared to honor God by living out His will, no matter what that might entail. We'll talk about that more in just a few minutes. Mind if I close us in a word of prayer here? Lord, we do thank you for your sure foundation, a solid foundation. There is no other foundation laid than, than Christ himself. You are a mighty God. You are sovereign. And it's our duty to do your will, no matter what that may be. Help us to do that. Show us what that will is. It's in your name we pray. Amen.